Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hi there, I'm Janet. Welcome to The Good Place, the podcast. Janet, what is a podcast? It's like the radio, but there's no music, and literally anyone can do one at any moment about any subject. And there's a billion of them. Sounds great. Hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to The Good Place, the podcast. I'm Mark Evan Jackson. I play Sean. In today's episode, we discuss the season one finale, chapter 13, Michael's Gambit. It includes guest cast Tia Surkar, Bamba John Bamba, Luke Goldan, John Hartman, Jamal Williamson, Braxton Beckham, Joe Mandy, Monet Michael, and Josh Siegel. In this episode, while Eleanor, Tahani, Chidi, and Jason attempt to decide which two should go to the bad place, Eleanor makes the startling realization that they are already in the bad place. Before Michael is able to reboot their memories, Eleanor hides a note to herself in Janet's mouth. Eleanor is rebooted with a new soulmate and a somewhat altered afterlife. In flashbacks, we see the development of Michael's plan to torture the humans. Fans of The Good Place will remember this episode as the one in which not a bunch happens, and then we go home. (laughs) My guest today is the director and writer of the episode, Mike Shore. Mike Shore, welcome. Everything is fine. Oh, thank you. That's great to hear. Um, where do we begin? Well, you've already done podcasts on the first 12 episodes, right? I feel like That's you, ha- you have begun already. I so. just mean with this episode oh. with you. I want to talk about the writer's room. I want to talk about uh, I want to talk about the process. I want to talk about this episode. But one thing that came up very recently in our recording this is that you didn't have a season two pickup uh, when we were shooting this episode. In fact, not I, I don't think a frame of The Good Place had aired yet. Is that right? Uh, that's true, yes. We shot the whole thing in the dark and did not... I mean, I had pitched the ending to NBC, so they sure. felt like they didn't know what was happening. But yeah, we didn't know one way or the other whether we were coming back. So there was a chance that this episode was going to be the last thing that ever happened with the show. Uh, which was kind of weirdly thrilling. Like, <laughs> because if you, yeah. if you could imagine, like, there's no good way for a TV show to get canceled, but th- this would have been a cool way for a TV show to get canceled. Like, like goodbye. Complete destruction of all <laughs> known reality. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, this, that happened, and then you just have to use your imagination to wonder what the rest of Infinity is. The, this episode begins with uh, torture at its highest. Right, like you've. Uh, I think in the previous episode we left them with Sean saying, uh, "Jason and Eleanor have been found to be property of the bad place. Mm-hmm. Uh, you owe us two people. You decide." Kind of right. thing. So that's that's uh, talk about the you had the torture matrix, the sort of diamond of of, right. 
of who gets against whom, right? Right. So the the design of this, and this was an early this was an early decision. Like, and when I say early, I mean I think around the time I was either writing the pilot or maybe we were shooting the pilot. It was sort of like, um, okay, it, the end game has to get real crunchy, right? Mm-hmm. That there has to be a, we have to devise a situation in which everyone is in one room being tortured. And the, uh, again, the the design of the show eventually became sort of like No Exit, the Jean-Paul Sartre play about three people who are in hell. Now, they know they're in hell, right? right. So um, it's a little different, but um, we uh, was like the end of the season has to be basically all four of these people in a room. And so the design of this was everybody's in one room the whole time, and they're just and it's just the dynamics. It's just person A, person B, person C, person D, and they're all driving each other nuts. And right. so in order to accomplish that, we devised a scenario in which, and this is, you have to go back a couple episodes to see how the the bricks were laid. Um, we designed a scenario in which a person, ostensibly an, an impartial judge, Sean. Which was a lie. Uh, says, I don't care. You guys decide, right? Mm-hmm. That had to, part of the, part of the torture, a huge part of the torture is it's up to them to figure out who's going to hell. Sure. And the reason that it's torture, obviously, is Chidi has tremendous guilt and, and a little bit of a martyr complex. And Eleanor has, has been on both sides of this. She's been like, I'm going to hide and pretend and, and, everyone's got to help me because I'm awesome. Right. And she's gone all the way over the course of the season to like, you know what? I'm driving everybody crazy. I got to get out of here. Right. And then Jason's just a ding dong. And (laughs) and Tahani believes more than anything that she deserves to be in heaven. So you have, you have like four very different points of view. And the key was that to me, the key was that it wasn't one of you has to go, right? If, if it, if it had been one of you has to go, then it would have been very easy for Eleanor to do the right thing and say, I have to go because right. I'm not supposed to be here, right? Or for for Chidi to say, no, I deserve this or whatever. But when it's two people, then it gets real interesting because then Sean and Michael and the other demons get to throw them the crazy curveball of, okay, well, if it's, it's two people have to go, so it should be Eleanor. The episode starts with Eleanor saying, come on, Jason and I are the ones who aren't supposed to be here. It's right. an easy call. Sorry, bud, we got to go. He's reluctant because he is in love with Janet. Yeah, and also because he's a ding-dong who doesn't want to go. <laughs> doesn't see the, he hasn't studied the ethics maybe as carefully as Eleanor has. But then the fun, the real fun in the act one break is is Vicky, real Eleanor, coming in and throwing them the curveball like, I'm going to go because Chidi doesn't love me, which is just quadruple torture for Chidi. So the, anyway, this is all a long way of saying that like we had to work backwards right. from this scenario many episodes um, into the past and lay down the foundations for these moments of like real Eleanor falling in love with Chidi and and Chidi being conflicted about his feelings for Eleanor and Tahani and all that stuff. In or, and it was all, the whole thing culminated in this episode. And that's why it was so fun to do. It, it goes back, uh, the laying of these bricks goes back even further than Sean because uh, I realized in the course of hosting this podcast that um, Trevor is a very good actor. Yeah. Uh, because he brings real Eleanor, who he 100% knows is Vicky, off the train and off walks, you know, sweet Tia Sirkar, yeah. uh looking all doe-eyed, like, I don't know what's going on. Um, so, they, like, this is really intricate. Why did you do this? Isn't this sitcom just easier than this? Uh, I don't think so, actually. Have I, you ever done anything so, like... Uh, Plot-heavy? Plot- no, I haven't. And, and, that, and, but that, and cliffhangy and so, intricate. Here's, here's a weird, like... I've been thinking about this recently um, in regards to my own uh, 
like path or something. When I was, uh, I took creative writing classes in college, like, and, and I, there's kinds of, and I wasn't great as a, as a short story writer, but, uh, one kind of interesting note that I kept getting from my professors and from, uh, peer reviews of my work was I was more interested in plot than most people were. I think that's also partly, this is in like the late nineties or mid nineties, really. I think that like plot isn't really en vogue in the world of short fiction writing. I think that's What are not, the other categories? Character, like character and, and mise-en-scene and sort of like tone and mood and okay. like, and specificity of, of geographical location, you know? Like yeah. it's, is it the, is it the, you know, the Southeast and the kind of texture of the Southeast or is it the desert Southwest or is it like mm-hmm. rural Wisconsin or whatever? And I kind of, I, I'm from a very boring place. I'm from suburban Connecticut. Okay. I, that, part of the world has been covered extensively by <laughs> a number of fiction writers. Uh, John Updike alone has, and, uh, and John Cheever and people like that. Like the white New England experience, we've got it. We're, we're, we're cool with that. Uh, so I, so I, the things that I happened to write were a very, were very like plot heavy because I just liked intricate storytelling. Mm-hmm. And so it was, and I didn't understand that that wasn't like en vogue in that world. I didn't particularly care uh, one way or the other because it wasn't going to be my future profession. But what I've realized is that, like, I as a TV writer, I ended up on shows that weren't super plot heavy. They just weren't. Like, The Office wasn't about plot. It was about it was really about character and location and and like and satire. It was you know corporate satire, private right. sector satire. Parks and Rec really wasn't about plot either. It was that was about the role of government in people's lives and about optimism versus pessimism and public service and um, all that sort of stuff. And so I think that what's happening with this show is like I'm kind of for the first time indulging my own particular interest in sure. in in clock and sort of like mechanics and and gears. How's it going? It's really fun. I mean, it's hard. It's it's very um, nerve wracking because the possibility for making a mistake you can't correct is significant, right? Like that's why planning it in advance is so necessary. It's because you get locked into, and I think I talked the first time we did this about the pilot, I think I talked about the shield Mm -hmm. Uh, and the shield was uh, an incredible high wire act. There have been other shows that were like this. The wire was an incredible high wire act. No Mm -hmm. pun intended. Um, There have been shows like this that have, that have relied very, heavily on everything matters like every tiny shot every plot development every move on the chessboard matters right and the problem with those with that living that way is like it's just a constant you're it's you know what it is it's like in in um like roadrunner cartoons when the Wiley Coyote builds a a bridge by nailing a board to the edge of a cliff and mm-hmm. then crawling out on it and nailing another board and then crawling out on that and nailing another board like <laughs> yeah. that's what you're that's what it feels like is like you're I don't know how this is being held up but quick hammer another board in before the whole thing collapses <laughs> but there are millions of dollars and 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 networks and yeah. really yeah. I mean look I mean you're doing it I'm not saying stop but I'm the, saying the thing is is like that look you, there's no the chance for failure is roughly equal, no matter what kind of show you're doing, I think. It's okay. like, it's about execution. And this is what Greg Daniels used to say on The Office, is like, the idea isn't the thing, the execution is the thing, right? Like, right. you can, no one, if you actually look at the history of television or any medium, it's like, well, the some some of it is like, well, that's 
that's such an amazing idea that like that, of course that was a success. Like, I don't know, like Memento or something. Mm -hmm. Memento, Memento's the, and for my money, still the best Christopher Nolan movie. That's and a it, movie where someone uh, he, he tattoos short their body because they have short-term short memory. Short-term memory and, loss. And it's sort of told in, in he, reverse. He lives like moment to moment because he doesn't remember anything. And he's, he's put all these reminders of who he is and what's going on in his life in photographs and notes and tattoos and stuff. And the movie's told backwards. You right. learn the plot back. Backwards. It's an incredible idea. But also, if it weren't executed properly, it would stink. Like, anything would stink if you don't execute it properly. So I, I, as far as, like, the money and the, and the you know, the budget of the show or the risk or whatever, it's like, I, to me, it's the same. The risk is the same no matter what your okay. idea is. It's about execution. So Michael has a lot of tattoos in season three? Is that... <laughs> that actually... Well, you know what's funny is... So at the end of this, I'm actually amazingly going to tie this rambling uh, discourse into what we're doing right now. Ready? Are you ready for this? I don't know. Uh, you know we can't talk about season three. Yes, I'm saying at the, we're talking about episode 113, the Correct. end of season one. At the end of this episode, we had to have Eleanor send herself a message right. to the future that said <laughs> what, did gave her a clue. That was how it ended, right? And so we talked about a lot of things. We said, okay, what if she hides a note, writes a note to herself behind one of the clown paintings, right? Mm -hmm. Thinking like, oh, Michael references the clown paintings and how much they tortured her and stuff. And so she's like, oh, those clown paintings are going to be back. So I'll leave myself a note. Or what if she tattoos her, on, uh, uh, writes on her arm? What if she takes a Sharpie and writes, you know, whatever, don't trust Michael or find Chidi on her arm or whatever? Sure. We kept thinking about th things like that. And then we were like, well, that's insane. Where it's not; these aren't tangible objects. We're in the afterlife. These right. are imag. These are virtual, virtual objects yeah. that Michael. And also, there's no guarantee. She has no guarantee that any of that stuff is going to be there again. Right. He might completely change everything. And do we really? Are we really going to rest all of season two on the idea that Michael wouldn't check to see if she wrote on her own arm with a sharpie? Like that's <laughs> absurd, right? Right. So. All of those we had, but Memento was a touchstone for us because we were thinking about the ways in which people who have problems with their memories being erased yeah. send messages to themselves. And in the end, we went with, we had planted this thing. Megan Amram had written a joke in episode seven, I think, which was that Janet, um, she was like, I'm, this is a, there's 25 versions of Janet. I, I can't eat anything. So when it's my birthday, I just shove a piece of cake where my mouth should be, right? <laughs> that was a throwaway joke that Megan just wrote in that episode. That really? Was, that that was wasn't foreshadowed? No, nothing. Like, Colonel? It, nope. It was a total throwaway joke that I thought was hilarious, and we left it in. And suddenly... And this is what happens very frequently with complicated shows like this. Suddenly that thing takes on a tremendous amount of importance really because does. we say, oh, this is how Eleanor gets this note to herself is she puts this thing in Janet's mouth and figures even when Janet's rebooted, since she can't eat anything, it'll just still be there. Michael won't check her mouth to see if there's anything in there. And that's how she gets the note to herself. And, uh, and then there you go. And that, that ends up becoming the entire hinge for season two. I remember asking you on set during season two uh, about the trolley problem, whether you had that in mind when you devised in the pilot that in the first season that the means of transportation was via train. And you're like, no, that was an accident. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it really was. It was a total accident. Although I will say at some level, um, if you really want to get sort of like uh, philosophical about things like this, the mm, trolley problem... Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> that the the reason we chose trains is because on a practical level in terms of what you are able to show 
in TV with your budget and, and, and visual effects. And in a sort of, I don't know what you would call it, like a stylistic way, mm-hmm. a train is like a cooler way for people to get around the afterlife than what? Than a than beaming teleportation right. or something. Yeah. And it just seemed like they're, like they're, the old timiness of a train made sense in some way. And the trolley problem is a, a sort of classic problem in part because I think it has a kind of visual energy to it. Like you can imagine being on a trolley ramp, like out of control trolley heading towards five people. There is some kismet there in terms of the, we chose trolleys in part because of their sort of classic design. Um, there's some overlap, I, I would venture to say. But yeah, no, a lot of these things end up being, they seem like magic tricks, right? right. They, they seem like we you this tiny detail in the middle of the year ends up becoming important at the end of the year. And sometimes it's very, very intentional. And sometimes it's like, oh, wait, we can just use that thing that we didn't know we were going to use. I feel like 90% of this show is like really – uh, like your logic is is foolproof in things. Um, there are there are questions that arise. You know, Michael and Sean have a conversation in Eleanor's bedroom, and Sean says, "Like, I hope your boss doesn't whatever, right? Because you could get retired on you know burned on the surface of a thousand suns or however it's framed." Um, I'm talking about myself. That's correct. At, at that point, <laughs> so it's coded. Yeah. Um, and we have several evidences of that sort of thing. You know, like Sean's cocoon. It, isn't really real. I don't have that. When I am in the face of emotional, I'm saying I, cause I'm Sean. <laughs> That's <laughs> ridiculous. Uh, he can handle emotionally heated situations without cocooning. That was right. I, I don't know. A story thing. It's well, it's torture. He's okay. torture. It's just a little bit of torture, right? It's like, right. we're not going to just make you make these arguments. I'm going to make just for fun. Flat face. I'm going to make you do it in like the most annoying <laughs> way possible. It's just, I, that was a uh, early discussion was part was like, um, there is no torture too small. That was a, a phrase that we used a lot. Wow. For in, From Michael's point of view, and then by extension from Trevor's point of view or from Sean's point of view, there is no, like at every moment, the point is to just make, drive them crazy. No you stairs. Know? Yeah, just the, these little petty, stupid yeah. things that like, that's part of the fun for them is like, they, we're going to get them anywhere we can. We're going to make their lives 1% worse whenever we can, because that's what we are here for. So that cocooning thing was, first of all, it's just a comedy device to get a series of monologues from all of our cast where they were trying to be as flat and emotionless as possible. But also it's just like, they're desperately, they're desperately, desperately, desperately trying to advocate for their friends and loved ones. And this, if they even put a tiny inflection Zip. in their voices, they're then they got to wait them out. So it was like that was no torture too small was like a, a good rule of thumb. That's why the stairs was so funny to me. It's like, just make Eleanor be a little bit annoyed every time she enters her own house. There is established reality. There is truth in the bad place, the good place. I'm thinking of uh, in at the end of season two, I remember saying to you after Janet lifts Sean up by the neck and throws him against the wall and then kicks him in the face, I said to you between takes, like, is this the end of Sean? And you were like, what do you mean? And I said, am I dead? And you were like, no, Janet's can't kill demons. Yeah. Like, because you have this Dungeons and Dragons like hierarchy in your mind. Yeah. Um, and then something happened uh, that I won't get into in season three. It doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> but I was like, you said only one group of people can do this sort of thing. Um, and then later you say another group does it. And I said, how? And you're like, I don't know. Some Like, <laughs> like they hack it or, right. Like that sort of thing. Um, can you tell the story that you told me about uh, Phil and Chris and about uh, nothing mattering? Oh, yeah. So I, I don't want to say specifically who the... Uh, <laughs> 
who the person was, but um, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who directed the Lego movie, and they directed the pilot of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is how I came to really know them or work with them for the first time. They told me a story about working on a certain project, and the project was a very sort of um, mass market intended uh, thing. Yes. And um, Phil and Chris uh, were looking at the script, and they suddenly realized that there was a logic problem in the script. A and big It was a, a, a very simple logic problem like not uh and and what i mean by that is not like ooh, if you squint this doesn't make sense it was literally like in one scene a guy is in tunisia or something and in the very next scene he's walking down the street in philadelphia (laughs) and it was like well wait a second somehow this got all jumbled up and we got to figure it out so they sat down and they were working through and they're like we could explain this we can move this here and do this over here we could say oh we could say that he had he got the money from his friend and then he got on a plane whatever and a person who was working on the movie came in, a powerful person, right. came in and said, what are you guys doing? And they said, hey, we just realized that in scene seven, he's in Tunisia, and in scene eight, he's in Philadelphia. And so we're trying to move this thing around and explain it this way. And the guy's response was, uh, hey, guys, uh, nobody cares. <laughs> right. And they were like, oh, okay. And they just kind of ignored it. And then in the movie, there is this giant, <laughs> there is that logic problem exists, I believe. I actually don't remember. I shouldn't say that. In the script, as they shot it, right. the problem persisted, and the reason was because, <laughs> and and the, and like you could look at that story as a, as like a, a tale of Hollywood sure. uh, callousness or something of the opposite of art, where it's like the the specifics don't matter. Um, people are morons. We have contempt for our audience. <laughs> or you could look at it as I choose to as a scenario in which you. It is very important to understand what you're making, right? Like what you are making with, um, let's say, Transformers 15. Take it easy. Is, is like, <laughs> I can't believe I chose that franchise. Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean 17. I'm fine with it. Okay. Um, what you're making when you're making that is very different than what you're making if you're making, you know, uh, Manchester by the Sea. And so <laughs> that like the, and it's, and it's not like, it's, I don't say that just to be sort of like a, a silly. I say that because from the point of view of the writer or the creator or the actor or the producer or anything, what you are presenting and why you're presenting it matters moment to moment. Mm-hmm. And it matters in the, in the macro and in the micro. And, there is a there is an argument to be made that if you're making Pirates of the Caribbean 17, that you are wasting your time and in fact you are harming your product by caring too much on meticulous plot mechanics. Because mm-hmm. that's not why people are going to see that movie. They're going to see it for spectacle and fun and adventure and right. and a feeling and a vibe and a octopus ghost. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so like you're actually doing a bad job, I think, if you are too nerdy about the way that character A gets to point B from point C. And so it was like, I, I think about that story a lot um, just because it feels like the message of that story to me is like, always always think about what you're doing and why you're doing it and who you're doing it for and make sure that you're properly doing it for those people in that, in that scenario. With the intricacy of the storytelling and the uh, logic in the show and the nonlinear aspect in which it's, the story is told, does that add uh, days, weeks, months to the, to the room process, the writer's room? Uh, yeah, although I don't know. I mean, it's not like we don't know going into every year that we, that's a huge part of it, sure. right? It's like I, I would say what it really does is it changes the allotment of time day to day. Like. It's just a it's just a thing that we are aware of that we have to account for while we're doing the normal work of breaking stories. So 
it doesn't, I don't think it, I don't know if it adds time. I would say it changes how we spend our time. Like we, there's a lot right now, we're at the very, very end of breaking the third season and we are breaking episodes literally like, ep- I mean, we have everything written through 11 and, okay. and half of 12 is already written. And so, and we have the outline for 12 and 13 done and we're just, wait- and the, the only holdup in terms of executing the scripts is that we are looking at the plots of eight through 13 holistically in one giant pile because everything, ha- everything that happens starting in eight directly affects everything that happens for the rest of the year. So we're just making sure that all of those all of those big plot points in eight are what we want to do for nine and then nine for 10 and so on and so on. So that's just, that's a new thing. Like that didn't used to happen on other shows I've worked on because it wasn't, they things weren't so tightly conceived of. Right. Although I will say that in certain seasons of certain shows, there have been at least chunks of episodes that I've worked on where it, it had the same feeling, where it was like, well, this has to happen here so that in the next episode, this can happen and whatever. Um, but in this case, it's really, we really have to approach it from an eagle eyes view. Yeah. E- eagle's eye? 30,000 feet, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. Know, an overview of, of what happens. It's so tempting to joke about uh, season three and, and what might happen. Uh, <laughs> But I'm so frightened of getting anywhere close to where you might be going. That's like Jamila. Jamila right. doesn't like to. She runs and hides. She yeah. hides her. She puts her. Speaking of which, like, do, did you do TCAs this year for season three? No, you usually don't do TCAs for existing okay. shows. Yeah, but I mean, you're being interviewed about yeah. season three, and you can't say a thing, right? No, I've gotten pretty good at um, the art of saying nothing. I would say. Um, I was not great at it before. I like talking about the show. I like talking about anything I'm working on. It's fun. If anybody wants to talk to me about it, I'm happy to talk to them about it. So I've always enjoyed talking to any any blogger or critic or fan or anybody who want, who just is like, hey, this is interesting. Let's talk about it. Sure. In this case, I had to learn a new skill, which was to be able to talk about it without actually talking about it. And that that's doable in part because I can always talk about Ted and Kristen and mm-hmm. Manny and how good looking Manny Jacinto is and <laughs> how um, how sad it would have been if if Will Harper had quit acting and how crazy it is that Jamila Jamil was had never acted before. She right. showed up here uh, and how amazing it is that Darcy Carden figured out how to play Janet when I didn't know how she should play Janet. Mm-hmm. I, there, there are things to talk about without the plot. Okay. Um, it's it's less fun. Like it's more sure. fun to sit here. With well, I mean, you, you have now. a delicious secret, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and usually more than one. And so it's it's more fun to sit here and talk with you about episode one thirteen. Oh, in uh, in in retrospect, and say like, hey, wasn't that fun? And we can talk about it without ruining anybody's experience. Although I imagine, do you think? Here's a question for you: Uh-oh. Is anyone listening to this podcast who didn't watch the show? I hope not. People have asked on Twitter whether it's important to have, and the answer is, <laughs> of course, yes. <laughs> Uh, that will improve the listening experience. Yeah. Um, you can search for the episodes on NBC.com or the NBC app. Oh, you have some Holy mother forking shirt balls. What? Wow. Okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Woo! Yo, Mikey, Sean, come on out. 
everything okay? Right as rain, Mikey, my boy. So, Chidi and I are gonna go to the bad place. What? Trust me, I've got this. That's our decision. Let's hit it. Well, what about real Ellen? No, it's me and Chidi. Call the train. Point of order. I don't accept this offer. The real mistakes were Jason and Ellen. Ga, 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 ga. You said any two of us. It's me and Chidi. Let's do it to it. Michael, I just found an obscure precedent in the rules that might just save everyone. Buzz off, Bomba John. Don't need it. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> Ready when you are, boss. Eleanor, what's going on? It took me a while to figure it out. But just now, as we were all fighting and yelling at each other and each one of us demanding we should go to the bad place, I thought to myself, man, this is torture. And then it hit me. They're never gonna call a train to take us to the bad place. They can't, because we're already here. This is the bad place. <laughs> oh, man. I can't believe you figured it out. <laughs> oh, God. You, you ruined everything, you know that? Holy motherforking shirtballs. <laughs> the full, uh, full culmination of those swearing substitutes. Um, talk a little bit about uh, Ted Danson and that sinister push-in and laugh that we almost didn't shoot. Yeah, so I've said this before in a couple places. Apologies if anyone's heard this before, but they... So the script was written as Eleanor solves the puzzle. She challenges Michael. There's a long, very quiet pause in the sound mix. We dropped everything out except for the natural sound of Kristen slowly turning around and the floor creaking a little bit. Which is that is, right? Yeah, we dropped out every single... There's no walla. There's no cricket sounds from the outside. There's none of the stuff. Usually there's a sort of bed of of white noise kind of in any scene that just room tone and stuff. Right. And we dropped it all out. And it's just, it's really cool. It's a really weird, eerie moment because you're hearing, you're basically hearing nothing. You're hearing a soundstage, which is cool, which you don't often hear. Um, wow. So the way it was written was the camera crashes in on Michael. I imagined a scary Lost style sound effect, like the way that Lost episodes used to end with that weird shrieking orchestral like crescendo. And then... He the he breaks at, in the script, and what he does is he becomes a petulant mm-hmm. jerk <laughs> teenager. Right, and he goes, "Oh man, oh god, Eleanor, you suck!" And he Which stomps we shot. around. Right, so and and I thought that it would be really funny if what you saw was when the, when the facade cracked and crumbled, that what you saw was just a jerk, right. just a just a total the opposite of what we had come to believe Michael really is. Right. So we shot it a million times. Um, and Ted did this amazing thing in the very first take, which is he ranted and raved and everyone stared at him with mouths agape. And then he collapsed down. I told him at the very end, just sit, collapse down in this chair. Yeah. So he collapsed in the chair and he looked over and there was this very small potted plant next to him. Yeah. And with an insouciant grin on his face, <laughs> he reached out his index finger and just slowly pushed it off and it crashed to the ground, and then he get, he he upturned his hand like, "What do you think of that?" Right, and it was amazing. Yeah. And I was like, "Oh my god, this is great! This is going to work so well. I love it." Right, 
So we did it six, seven, eight more times. We got a bunch of more plants. We had him push the plant off every time because it was so funny. Yeah. But as we did it, it was like, the end of it was great. The be- The moment was still like, this is good, right? We were talking ourselves into it a little bit. It was like, this is it w- okay. It was there. Yeah. It was like, yeah, it's going to work. Like right. it's, uh, I mean, if you haven't seen this coming, it's going to be shocking. It's oh going to be fine. Yeah. But it, 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 it was like 91% satisfying. And I was sort of talking it over with Ted and you were there in a weird judge's robe <laughs> looking like a real weenie. Yeah. And <laughs> a real weenie. And I was like, I don't know, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And he went, can I just try something? Let me just try something. And I was like, great, please. Yes, you're Ted Danson. Try whatever you want. And then the next take, we crashed in and he gave the giggle that is in the episode, right. which will stand the test of time as being one of the greatest, like, weird comedy slash drama acting moments that I've ever personally witnessed. For sure. And it was a million times better. And then the problem became, how do you merge that giggle and the kind of like weird, sinister, almost like happy to have been caught, Michael, with what we needed to get to, which was petulant, angry, and upset Michael. And the answer in network television is a commercial break. Act break. (laughs) We went to commercial. (laughs) We had him giggle and laugh and say, I can't believe you figured it out. And then we broke and we came back. Then he was annoyed and angry and petulant. Do you double back and repeat a line? I've forgotten how exactly we it's done. We did. We we overlapped a little bit. We had we used some audio from one take that wasn't natural audio, which was played on the faces of the people as they were staring. And, right, right, and, right. In, in shocked uh, awe. So yeah, we, we finessed it a little bit, but basically we got the best of both worlds because we got the giggle. Yeah. And then we got to get all the way to him shoving the plant off of the... <laughs> off of the uh, off of the end table. So it was, I, I mean, it is, I don't say this to be a suck up. That is Ted Danson being a genius. That is a thing that you could not write really. You could write the stage direction he gives an evil giggle, but you, right. even if you did that, even if you were smart enough to do that, you would not technically be writing what he did, which is just inhabit 12 and a half episodes of a demon in a single moment, a demon being caught. It's the it's just the most wonderful moment. I think it's such a testament to the collaborative nature of this show because you and 12 or 14 writers spend months and months and months preparing this, getting it here, and in the last second, one person working on the show, it just happens to be America's sweetheart, national treasure to <laughs> dance in, but can go, do you mind if I try something? And it becomes the thing. It becomes iconic. It becomes forever. Yeah. Well, that's the that ought to be how it always is in every show. I and, agree. And um, you know, there are there are things that you can write that are better than uh, that an actor can extemporaneously do, and there are things that actors can extemporaneously do that are better than anything you can write. And if you decide to run your show to the exclusion of either of those categories. If you decide to run your show as like, this is just going to be actors just running around doing whatever they want to do. Or if you say scripts are poems and they ought to be preserved in exactly word perfect uh, moment by moment, um, you know, uh, sort of like dramatic reading with no chance for any improvement, right. then you're just cutting off your nose to spite your face. And I've never understood it. There, I I can, any show I have ever worked on, I can give you off the top of my head five times when that are amazing, famous, wonderful moments in the show sure. where the writing had very little to do with what happened. And I can also give you uh, five moments where someone wrote something that is so perfect that the actors 
read it exactly ex- the way it was intended to the letter, over and, and over then again. that was the best it could ever be. So, sure. like, it's it. You have to. I just I've never understood either extreme. Like, it has to. You have to create an environment where the best idea wins, and in this case, that was the best idea. I'm smiling because I'm having a great memory of your telling the story of. Uh, Parks and Recreation, I typed your symptoms into this thing here. Yeah, exactly. Chris Pratt, I've, I mean, I've talked about this so many times, it's nauseating, but Chris Pratt improvised what I think is the best joke we ever told on that show, <laughs> which is Leslie Knope had the flu, and, and Pratt's character, Andy, was t- in that episode had temporarily taken over the job of being Ron Swanson's assistant, and he happened to be sitting at the desk when... Ben Wyatt, Adam Scott, came in and saw that Leslie had the flu and took her to the hospital. And Norm Hiscock, who was on set for that episode, said to Pratt, hey, they're dragging Leslie uh, right past you as they go. Just say whatever you want. Do whatever you want. Like, uh, come on, say say something on their way out. And what Pratt said was, and the point of the episode, by the way, was how, what an incompetent assistant he is because he was <laughs> he was the ding-dong of that show. And what he said was as, as Leslie was being dragged to the hospital, Pratt said, Leslie, he pointed to the to the web browser and he said, Leslie, I, I, I typed in your uh, symptoms into the thing up here and it says you might have network connectivity problems. <laughs> that's a joke. That, that's the best joke we told on that show. It's it was so at least good. tied for first. And, <laughs> and, you know, if we didn't have the spirit on that show of like, hey, best idea wins, do whatever you want, Chris Pratt, um, that wouldn't have aired and it would have been so sad. So sad. Uh, Eleanor finally has power. In uh, in this moment, yeah. After the Holy Mother forking shirt balls, first of all, a, uh, a, a an award eligible uh, realization, yeah. Um, that was incredible. She's got her hands behind her head. She's like, ugh. And then you see her go, wait a second, and connect dots, and you see these synapses fire, yeah. And she turns, and then she's able to go, buzz off, Bombajan, don't like, Mikey, my boy, like yeah. the, all the power turns. And it's so delicious to watch her do that. And the the four, Jason and and uh, uh, Janet and and Chidi are and Tahani are all going like, what What are you doing? Yeah. Wait. Why do I have to go? You know. Um, and I feel as though Michael's sitting there with a quarterback's playlist on his arm, going like, uh, Enter, Enter, yeah. Vicky, Enter. You know. <laughs> yeah. Like just calling, pulling all these strings, and none of it works. Yeah. We had a. Um it was a part of the the main design of Eleanor Shellstrop from the beginning was she has an incredibly acute sense of when she is being taken advantage of or when someone's trying to take advantage of her. Sure. She has her antenna. Eat my farts. We talked about her antenna all the time. She has a really wow. sensitive antenna for people because she's part of her backstory is her parents were nightmares and disasters. When she was 14, she moved out of her house and she lived on her own. She lied about her age to get a job, to support herself. She was uninterested in cliques in high school. Her, she, it's not just a kind of like, yeah, she has walls up. She has a defense mechanism. It's that she has an incredibly sensitive antenna for when people are trying to screw her over or take advantage of her. Thinking of the flashback about going to the movies. Do you want to go to the movies? Sure, I'll pay. Oh, so I owe you? Oh, yeah. you'll pay. What? So you, so get, the you get the points yeah. on your credit card? Oh. Yes. And it was always to, to the absolute detriment of her life. She was constantly assuming that everyone all the time was trying to screw her over, take advantage of her. And so we like that was the the way that it unfolded and the way the reason we did flashbacks like that is so that when she solved this particular puzzle of how this particular guy in the ultimate case 
ever created of someone trying to take advantage of her or screw her over that she would be incredibly satisfied. It's like she's a she's a crossword puzzle enthusiast who just solved the most difficult crossword puzzle ever right. devised and it was so satisfying to watch Kristen not just get that but play that of like oh and that she's happy she's like this one's good like yeah. this guy really but like it's the 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 note that we talked about uh before we shot that scene was this guy's good but I'm better right that was that was the, and that's what she played is when like, you say that you mean that that's what you said to Kristen yeah like yeah have this in mind it was this guy's good but I'm better and because it, she does she doesn't just go oh my gosh this is the bad place she goes she calls his bluff and she goes yeah bring it yeah, call a train, man. Exactly. She she does, she toys with them a little bit. Oh wait, she, you can't. She because she's a hundred percent confident that she's right. Yeah. But the way she's gonna prove it is she's gonna get a tiny bit of revenge by torturing him for mm-hmm. about thirty seconds. She gets to torture him by going like, no, no, come on, go ahead. Right. You said it was this. Go ahead, well, let's go. Come on. Oh, I mean, Sean off. Her, Sean's like, uh, no, uh, point of order. Um, yes, like they're all these. It's very fun to see Michael and Sean suddenly a little bit off their games. Like they're. Uh, you directed me to. You're like, um, panic a little. Yeah. Like this needs to be like. Um, yeah. No. For the first time ever, these two, right. uh, especially Sean. Yeah. But Sean and Michael being like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, hang on. Yeah. I, I don't accept this. <laughs> uh, right. Rules. Yeah. There are rules. <laughs> yeah. It was. It's such a good performance. It by Kristen, and it it was the thing that everybody remembers is Michael's evil giggle. But Michael's evil giggle doesn't come out unless unless Kristen just absolutely nails that ninety seconds or two minutes of um of turning the tables. It's such a fun thing to watch. And then, as though things can't get worse, Michael says next time. Yeah. Oh, that's it. That's why I put you too close together. I'll do a slow burn next time. Yeah. And they're like, whoa, 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 next time. Yeah. So it's going to happen again. It's the clock's again. ticking. Yeah, that was a um. There's a, a a favorite personal move of mine is um, is a self petard hoisting. Let's call it when someone is hoisted on his or her own petard. What does that mean? I it, know that phrase. It, it's uh, it means that you are the victim of your own action. Okay. Kind of, you are the one who designs your own prison cell Very or good. or undoing. So. Um, Kristen, uh, Eleanor, gives this monologue right. where she says, oh, I, you, you know what, buddy? You thought we were going to torture each other. And, uh, you know, you, you were right. You know, I'll give it up. You did a good job. But in the end, you blew it because what you didn't count on is that the four of us would become friends and we'd get really close and we would help each other and support each other. And so the only thing you actually succeeded in doing was actually bringing us all together. And then Very Self gives him a very satisfied look. And he's like, oh, thank you. You just unlocked the key right. to the way I'm going to do this the next time because it never occurred to her that she could ha- that there could be a next time. Um, so that, that that's a nice little moment, too, when Michael's like genuinely happy. Right. Now, that's how the way Ted played it, which was wonderful, is like, just like, oh, this is so great. Oh, thank you. As if as if he um, needed babysitting and Eleanor came over to his house and said, like, hey, I can watch your kids while you run out. Great He's note, just bro. like, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, God, this is so wonderful. Thank you so much. This is so great because now I know how I can torture you for eternity. We've talked in the first episode, you and I, about the video that, uh, that Kristen shot of you telling the the other four actors about the, the twist that we're talking about in this episode. Uh, let's take a listen to that. And is like, what is going on? And she goes, you know, it took me a long time to figure this out. But just now, when we were all fighting and screaming and yelling at each other about which one of us was going to get to go to the bad place, it finally hit me. They're never going to call a train to send us to the bad place. They can't because we're already here. This is the bad place. Oh! You 
all turn to Michael and he goes, Ah, oh, God damn it, Eleanor. Ah, oh, you ruined everything. Ah, oh, this was so much fun. Oh my God. And he collapses into a chair and that's the end of Act Two. Oh my God. It's a funny moment that I think must have been particularly interesting for Jamila and for Will, who thought their characters were, by right, in the good place. That's right, yes. And that, so that's not only are they learning that the show that they're on is taking a massive, uh, you know, right turn or whatever, um, but they're like, oh no. I'm not so virtuous. Yeah, well, th- it was fun as the as the season unfolded. Jamila, they they their antenna went up a little bit, and Jamila was like, "Tahani's kind of a handful, isn't she?" And oh wow! I, and I was like, "Yeah, she is." Like you know, the, but that's part of the you know, no one no one said that these people had to be perfect, right? Sure. They, they were, you know, I was sort of I played it a little bit fast and loose. Um, you lied to them. I lied to them. That's correct. That's another way to say that I played it fast <laughs> and loose. <laughs> But uh, but she but they were both aware that their characters had serious deficiencies or flaws, sure. and um, and so they I think they were certainly shocked, and you can see it in their faces in that video that Kristen shot. But at the same time, you know, over the course of the season, there have there had been, by necessity we had to lay in these moments where you saw the way that they were on Earth, and you saw that they yes they might have been Tahani might have raised sixty billion dollars for charity, but. Also, she had a very screwed up priority. Um, her priorities were all out of whack. She did most of what she did to get revenge on her sister or impress her parents or whatever. Right. And so, I think it was a shock because it was a because it was a shocking thing to tell them. But also, um, it was in retrospect. If you really thought back on what had happened, it was it was inevitable. So Michael makes uh, he reboots them. Mm-hmm. This is version two. And things change in an uh, in an effort to, I think, make it seem even more like the good place. Um, Eleanor's soulmate is a uh, buff, jacked <laughs> mailman with a shirt off. That's right. Um, and not only is everything fine, but now everything's great. Like yeah. these are tiny little improvements yeah. that he was like, you know what I should do. Yeah. Well, that was like, all right, neighborhood 2.0. What does he do? You know, maybe fine isn't enough. Maybe we go great this time. Uh, and yes, Eleanor, he's obviously tinkered with the formula. He's separating the four humans. So we need a, um, uh, a different soulmate for Eleanor. What's really going to make it appealing? What's really going to make her want to stay? In uh, in the good place, oh, if her uh, Chris whatever Chris, Chris Baker, yeah, Chris Baker. Uh, he's from Teaneck, New Jersey. Yeah, uh, he's a mailman. Um, he's, Why Teaneck? Uh, it's where Damon Lindelof is from. Nice. It was a little uh, tip of the cap to Damon for That's helping cool. me with the show. Um, and because they're they're physically identical, Damon and uh, and Chris Baker, they're they're ve- <laughs> they look exactly like, and their bodies are shaped the same way. Uh, <laughs> but. Uh, so yeah, they, that was a fun little like. Can you spot the difference? Is the it's the thing in the doctor, the dentist office, right? The, in the magazine, it's like, can you right. spot the differences? Um, there's a bunch of them. Obviously, the the it's pizza places now instead of frozen yogurt places. Right. It's, uh, it's everything is great. Um, there's a there's some differences in the way Michael's office is laid out. The oh. I think the there's just I think the painting behind his head is a slightly different piece of abstract art, and we just had fun with shifting everything around a tiny bit. The clown. Paintings in Eleanor's house are arranged differently. They're they're the same, but they're in a different order. Wow! It's a little tiny stuff like that. That's a little spot the difference game. That suggests that Michael was like, it was probably the paintings. It was <laughs> well, probably the order. <laughs> I think. I mean, the idea, part of that idea, right, was like he says in this episode when you see the flashback to him pitching the idea to Sean, mm-hmm. he says, "Okay, this is a fifteen million point plan, right? That's a, one of the jokes, right? And if it's a fifteen million point plan to start with." 
once it gets going, it becomes a six trillion point plan, right? It's right. like the, as more and more things happen and variables occur and whatever. And so we were like, yeah, that it's it's. I mean, he's he's an immortal being with all the time in the world and unlimited resources. It's not like he has to have a crew come in and change this stuff. He just right. snaps his fingers. And because of that, and because he's immortal and omniscient within this world, there is no details too small. I would imagine not only did he think about the the order of the clown paintings on the walls, but he thought about like is the was the grass in her patio was that a was that a quarter inch too long? Wow. Would she be less uh, happy if it were uh, a quarter inch shorter? I mean, of course he did. That's the whole point of this sure. is that there is no. Uh, he says it in the in the pilot. He says every ladybug, every blade of grass, like. He, he's not lying when he says that. I have thought about everything. I have thought about the number of ladybugs that are floating around in the air and how that will affect you one way or the other. So, yes, of course, everything is the color, the grain of the wood. Would, there be, would it be more annoying for her if there were six more knots in the wood in her floor? Like No torture is too small. No torture too small. Wow. What are we missing? Like... <laughs> What what Teaneck, New Jersey's don't we know? Why U of M? Why Fibonacci? U of M, uh, my dad went to law school there, and I'm a Michigan fan. I was born in Ann Arbor. Okay. So, um, and and specifically, uh, I wanted, when the outfits turn stripey and crazy, um, that I wanted that color scheme to be particularly jarring. Maize and, and blue. And maize and blue is a particularly jarring. It's nice, one nice dark, rich color and one light, crazy color. Um I did think about other, I thought about, but but it was also part of, I thought about like, well, should it be, you know, uh, should it be Harvard or Oxford or Cambridge or should it be, you know, the University of Mumbai ridiculous. or something, right? right. But, but then I thought, well, no, I think it's an important part of, I mean, her name is Eleanor Shellstrap, which suggests, suggests that she's American or it, it could have been American. Um, and I thought like, well, a state school is a, is like a better it doesn't suggest privilege in the way that like Oxford or Cambridge might have suggested privilege, and I, it was an important part of real Eleanor's backstory that she that everything about her was self made, and she was a she was the opposite of 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 Kristen's Eleanor, right? right. She was a person who had she was abandoned in, in like a garbage dump by her parents, and then a, like her a backstory is insane. Or, yeah. Left in a fish tank, yeah. <laughs> she taught herself to she taught herself to speak English by watching Seinfeld and yada, all yada, that yada. sort of stuff. So I mean, yeah. The, in addition to no torture too small, there's another aspect of the show, which is like all these decisions are vetted in this crazy, intense way. There's very little. I'm not saying we always make the right decision, certainly, but there. But every one of them, because of what we were talking about earlier, every one of them matters. And so it's like we got to go over this stuff with a fine tooth comb to make sure there's at least an explanation for everything. Are numbers significant in the good place? The neighborhood number stands out. Uh, as, sure. as a as low hanging fruit of a clue that even someone uh, as uh, modicum Derek as me uh, can see, <laughs> but do if you if we were to assemble all the times a number is mentioned, uh, do we? Is that your address? Uh, no, <laughs> it's not. There are um, numbers are very mystical things, right? Sure. And people read into them. And speaking of Damon Lindelof on Lost, a large part of the mythology um, over the course of the many years of that show was the number sequence. It's the numbers that Hurley played to win the lottery. They're the same numbers that are that have to be entered into the computer by Desmond in the hatch to keep the whole world from exploding. Um, those numbers matter uh, to that show. And so we kind of, in our version is slightly different, right? Our version is 
well, this is not a like a mystical island where people are looking for significance. This is a torture chamber. Mm-hmm. And so what does a person who designs a torture chamber do? Oh, he makes you think that these numbers are significant. Oh, no. So neighborhood 12358W, 12358 is the beginning of the Fibonacci sequence, which is a f- conspiracy theorist dream. There's a lot of things <laughs> in nature that follow the Fibonacci sequence. There's a lot of people who believe that it has mystical powers and abilities and this and that, whatever. That's why Michael chose it. It's, he chose it because he wanted... Uh, people within the neighborhood and also people at home watching the TV show to think like, ooh, what does that mean? Right. The same is true of the number 322. The number 322 pops up a lot. It's on the train cars and stuff. Right. Um, 322 is the skull and bones uh, number. Like, uh, that is it's so dumb. A I mean, Yale secret society. A Yale secret society called the Skull and Bones that one of the people who works on our show may or may not have been in uh, and may or may not have told us that he was in it when you're not supposed to do that <laughs> if you were in the Skull and Bones. <laughs> but come on, for God's sake, it's a dumb secret society uh, at a college. Um, so we put the number 322 everywhere. You can find it constantly. Wow. Um, and it's, yeah, and it's mostly a... It's a little tip of the cap to the idea that this is a torture chamber a, that is designed to make people go crazy. And we thought it would be fun if every time a number popped up, it were a number that would set off an alarm bell in a person who reads a lot of Reddit threads. Have you ever talked about uh, the genesis of your Twitter handle, Ken Tremendous? And if not, may I take a guess? <laughs> I would love you to take a guess. The, the, the truth is going to be very disappointing, but go ahead. Is that true? Yeah. But go ahead. I don't know if the time, I've not researched this at all, and I don't know if the timelines line up. Um, were you still writing on Saturday Night Live? Does it have anything to do with Saturday Night Live? It does not. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, what, what was your guess? My guess was this, that it was a an unused alt name for when uh, Ludacris hosted <laughs> and Keenan Thompson played Rick Diculous. <laughs> I thought Ken Tremendous would be like, what's the worst version of this? The sad thing is, is that uh, I'm so old now that the the actual genesis of it was probably ten years before that happened okay. or something. But um, it, it, in weirdly in the self same uh, creative writing classes that I mentioned earlier in college, I was writing a short story and I was I was was walking down the street from like my the dining hall to my dorm and the name. Ken Tremendous popped into my head, and I thought that would be a really funny name for a character in a short story. It doesn't work in the one I'm writing, but that's a really funny name for someone. Yeah. I, th- I, when I was uh, in high school and college, I really loved uh, Thomas Pynchon, the writer Thomas Pynchon, and he all almost all of Thomas Pynchon's character names are absurd, okay, um, and and goofy and jokey and silly, and uh, and I think uh, they probably came from just reading a lot of Thomas Pynchon novels, but. That's it. I just thought that was a funny name, and I wrote it down in a notebook somewhere. And then when I wanted a sort of online persona, I was like, all right, well, Ken Tremendous. Oh, that's who I am. I'm Ken Tremendous. The near rhyme of it is sort of satisfying. It's, yeah, and yet it's, not, it's, it's and like a, imperfect. It's a slant rhyme, but it's also it, – like, Ken is a pretty boring first name, and then Tremendous is an absurd last name. That's what I think is funny about it. It's like Ken Tremendous is, a, is like a good juxtaposition of two things. What was the show that you pitched to Ted Danson regarding a retired Supreme Court justice in Montana? So my friend Matt... And may I play him? (laughs) My friend Matt Murray had this idea for a pilot that was about a person who goes to work for a retired, like a, not a retired, a, a um, active like appeals court judge. Oh, okay. And who is going to be a sort of larger than life kind of, um, you know, like like Montana or North Dakota or like out, out in the middle of nowhere, 
and uh, he was in a, a very and a politically very conservative uh, person. Mm-hmm. So that was the original time that I that I met Ted was pitching that was being with my friend when he pitched that show. Matt writes on The Good Place, He's right? A, yeah, and. Uh, and then that didn't work out. But then while we were doing it, it was like, well, wait a second. Hang on a second. If he doesn't want to do this, there's this other thing that was in the early stages of creation. And, uh, and so that was the origin of the idea to get Ted to play, to play Michael. Are you Michael? Are you Chidi? You mean, do I cons- who, who am I most like? Yeah. In terms of my role on the show or in real life? I, um, you know that the show exists, your role on the show exists in real life. Ooh, I don't understand what's happening right now. Okay. <laughs> um, you I, mean you mean who do I who do I think I most like? Is that the question? I suppose. Uh, I had this theory. So when I was writing on The Office, um, th- there was only one character that I really identified with, and that was Jim Halpert. And a lot of Jim Halpert's um, like mannerisms and kind of like ways of talking, I feel like were I just clicked. I locked into. I wrote. It was very very easy for me to write stories and lines and things for Jim Halpert. Wow. On Parks and Rec, uh, I w- it was um, Ben Wyatt. It was Adam Scott's character. Mm-hmm. Now, this is not surprising. Those two characters were roughly my age when I was writing for them, and they're kind of like slightly nerdy uh, white guys. And so it's unsurprising that that would be who I most identify with. However, at some level, you are, especially when you create a show, you are everyone. Like, you, the reason you created the characters are because there's some part of you that's imagining yourself as that person. So I'm, I'm no, I, there's no one character I would say that I really feel like that person is me okay. on the show. I feel like there's a little, I'm, I, I, I'm a little everyone. And I think most of the writers would say the same thing. I would imagine is like, we all have a little cheaty in us, a little indecision and a little uh, paranoia or, or we all get a little freaked out about making choices and, I think there's a little bit of Eleanor in everyone, which is to say everyone is a little bit worried all the time that there's someone who's trying to screw them over. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And there's a little bit of like Tahani's, the way that Tahani feels herself and is confident, like you would like to believe that you have that a little bit. You'd also, I'm sure it's true that we all have a little bit of a complex about our parents and our siblings. Oh, for sure. There's a little bit of Jason just likes to kind of goof around and watch football. That's um, right there with him. Bortles. Uh, (laughs) So yeah, I I think, uh, I don't think there's one person that I'm, that I most identify with. I'm not Michael. I know this is like a thing that like I the character. It's a little make, Fibonacci. Yeah, it yeah, it is. And I, and in this case, in that case, it wasn't intended to be. Okay. Um, I it's also a little archangel. Uh, it's Fibonacci. archangel. You yeah. Like it, people want to sniff that and go, uh-huh. I, I get it. I was with my wife on our on our for a 10-year anniversary, we went to Paris, which uh, which is where we had gone on our honeymoon, and we took a tour of the of Notre Dame and over the cathedral at Notre Dame, there's a high relief of of the Archangel Michael and weighing people's souls because he was the one who weighed people's souls to say whether they went to heaven or hell. And I was in the middle of working on the pilot and I was like, oh, that's the guy's name. He had been Ted in the script forever. I had just written Ted. And I was like, oh, wait, that's that's perfect. That's a, that's a perfect um, red herring, right? It's like you name him Michael because he is, over the course of the first season, going to appear to be the person who weighs Eleanor's soul to see if she gets in or out. We've talked a little bit about the writer's room, um, gotten some fascinating insight. Uh, Josh and Dylan told us about the one keyboard, 14 monitors thing, which I witnessed. Uh, I was in the writer's room a week or so ago and I saw you sit down. Do you type with just a few fingers? I do. I have always assumed that writers 
are able to mow down words with the speed of a live I, transcription. I can type very, very quickly uh, with the, I, I use, what do I use? I use I, like I, thumb index and middle. Maybe. I basically use two fingers on each hand and the, and the thumb for the space bar. It's very weird. It's not recommended <laughs> as, a, as a method. It's super not ASDF JKL7. No, and, and I never learned to touch type. I mean, again, this is like age. I think most kids, when I was, when I was in like elementary school, there was like, I'm thinking the last year of my elementary school is like, there's a new class and it's like keyboard it's like typing right and it had just started it was like 1989 or something and it was like oh this is important everyone needs to learn this yeah and but it was too late like you i think you kids now i'm sure are gonna everyone can well they're not even a need to type they're gonna just hook a suction cup up to their brains and and like think things and then they'll the words will appear on the screen i pray to god it's magnetic and not suction cups. i think it'll be suction cups really yeah i'm going suction. i'm going old school on this <laughs> i'm going steampunk uh but the but yeah i think uh, i think i missed being able to touch type by like two years i think if i were two years younger i would have i would have learned it but i just never did but so. can you cook oh god no oh okay you can't go like oh wait you meant you no know i don't mean, mean cook food <laughs> i meant i think i meant cook food. sorry i'm i'm from the jazz age uh, what I meant was, are you can able you to cook? Type da- you meant, can daddy-o. you cook daddy-o? That's what you meant. <laughs> That's precisely it. Can uh, you type quickly using merely your uh, index, middle, and thumb? I can type pretty quickly, however, n- very inaccurately okay. sometimes. Sometimes I'll, sometimes I can cook, baby. <laughs> sometimes I just feel, you know what? In I'm typing, sorry, I'm 80. In typing, it's the letters you don't type. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's the words you don't write. Interesting. But so, uh, yeah, some speed, but not accuracy. I also, I do the thing where every capital letter, every word that's capitalized, the second letter of that word is always ends up capitalized (laughs) and it drives me up the wall. What would, how would you get to shift on with this? I don't know what I'm doing. Oh my goodness. Again, I'm waiting for the suction cup system and then everything will be fine. Mike, sure. What's good? Oh, so we're doing this now. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, so I, pre- I didn't know you're going to ask me the first time. The, this time I prepared. Uh, I the pre- first time you talked about givewell.org. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I have a list. Are you ready? Oh, I Here do. We go. So w- the question is, what's good? Oh, do you want me to set you up again? No. Bibibababu. Mike, sure. What's good? Oh, thanks for asking. Um, in the category of peanut butter. Oh. Crunchy. In the category of berries. <laughs> blueberries. In the category of kinds of pizza, yes, onion. Oh, yeah, you were surprised, weren't you? Oh my goodness, I knew you were gonna be. No, the the one and two were so mainstream. I'm just telling you that. Look, this is a this is a, I'm reading an objective list. This isn't my list. Oh, this is objective. This is the universe just has announced. This is this. just truth. Yeah, I'm just I'm just I'm a vessel for truth. truth. That's right. In the category of kinds of books, hardcover. <laughs> there, there's, that's a good kind of book. In the category of candy, peanut M&M's. Interesting. In the category of breakfast foods. Yes. Scrambled eggs, whole wheat, butter, toast, and coffee. Okay. In the category of sports, baseball. Baseball, yeah. obviously. In the category of charities that can help immigrant children who are currently being ripped away from their families at the border. Yes. Kids in Need of Defense, that's supportkind.org, S-U-P-P-O-R-T-K-I-N-D, kind.org and borderangels.org. Those are two excellent charities. I would encourage everyone to go because they're good. And finally, in the category of podcast hosts, Mark Evan Jackson. That's ridiculous. (laughs) 
I was gonna do po- I was gonna do people who can host a podcast based on an episode by episode podcast based <laughs> on your TV show, but then I was like, well, that's too narrow a category. You're the only person in that category, so I'm just gonna go podcast host. You ruined the rest of the list by including that last <laughs> item, including the part about uh, helping charities that are helping children being ripped away from their immigrant parents. Yes, the kids, and one more time, kids in need of defense, which is supportkind.org and borderangels.org. And there's other ones too. There's a, there's a Texas-based charity you can find. There's a, there's a, if you just Google them, you'll find a bunch of them. And I uh, heartily encourage everyone to donate. Nature abhors a vacuum. Do you think that by creating a show as good as The Good Place you're responsible for all the mayhem we're experiencing? Um, It's a great question. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Mike Sure, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. This has been The Good Place, the podcast. I'm Mark Evan Jackson. Now go do something good. Hi there. The podcast is over. I think what I'm feeling is sadness. Oh, don't worry, Janet. This podcast is the most perfectly engineered invention since the paperclip. Fun fact, the man who invented the paperclip is in the bad place for tax evasion. It's available on Apple Podcasts and all major podcasting platforms or wherever you get your podcasts. Stop saying podcasts. Hosted by Mark Evan Jackson. Produced by Grant Rutter. Written by Lizzie Pace. Music composed by David Schwartz. Yay!